So we're looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. And let me begin by saying this. Racism, kidnapping, torture, abuse, rape, and other degrading and dehumanizing forms of treatment are evil. Full stop. That's the uniform teaching of Scripture. In view of this, it may be surprising that when Paul addresses slaves and masters here in Ephesians chapter 6, that he does not suggest that slaves revolt, nor does he suggest that masters free their slaves. Yes, slaves. The word that the ESV translates as bondservants could be accurately translated as slaves. In fact, you'll see that in, in the footnote of your Bibles if you have an ESV. The King James has also rendered it servants in this context, but the Greek word is doulos, and at times it's translated slaves, and at times it's translated into our English Bibles as servants or bondservants. Now the reason that the ESV translates it as bondservants is that the slavery practiced in the Roman Empire during the first century, at the time that the book of the, the letter to the Ephesians was written, is not directly equivalent to the 17th to 19th century African chattel slavery practiced right here in Barbados. We would automatically think of that kind of slavery when we hear the word slave. And so the ESV has rendered it as bondservants to try to help avoid miscommunicating about what we're talking about when Paul says the word slave in Ephesians chapter 6. On the point of slavery in the ancient Greco-Roman world, allow me a lengthy quote from Tim Keller, which I'm going to follow with another lengthy quote from Don Carson. All right? So Tim Keller. Slavery in the Greco-Roman world was not the same thing as the New World institution that developed in the wake of the African slave trade. Slavery in Paul's time was not race-based and was seldom lifelong. It was much more like what we would call indentured servitude. There is good evidence that much of slavery was very harsh and brutal. But there is also lots of evidence that many slaves were not treated like African slaves would be, but lived normal lives and were paid the going wage, but were not allowed to quit or change their employers, and were in slavery an average of 10 years. Prisoners of war often became slaves, and men could be sentenced to being galley slaves for crimes. A person be could become a slave for a set period of time in order to work off debts, because there was no such thing as bankruptcy in ancient times. Often the result was an indentured servanthood for years until the debts were paid. To our surprise, slaves could own slaves, and many slaves were doctors, professors, administrators, and civil servants. It's Tim Keller. One more lengthy quote from Don Carson. In his book, Race and Culture, African-American scholar Thomas Sowell points out that every major world culture until the modern period, without exception, has had slavery. While it could be tied to military conquests, usually slavery served an economic function. They didn't have bankruptcy laws, so if you got yourself into terrible hawk, you sold yourself and or your family into slavery. As it was discharging a debt, 
Slavery was also providing work. It wasn't necessarily all bad. At least it was an option for survival. Please understand me, I'm not trying to romanticize slavery in any way. However, in Roman times, there were menial laborers who were slaves, and there were also others who were the equivalent of distinguished PhDs who were teaching families. And there was no association of a particular race with slavery. In American slavery, though, all blacks and only blacks were slaves. That was one of the peculiar horrors of it, and it generated an unfair sense of black inferiority that many of us continue to fight to this day. End quote. I found out this week, while reading commentaries on this section, that even the Roman governor Felix, mentioned in Acts chapter 23 and 24, used to be a slave. And as Pastor Chris Powell pointed out to me while we were talking this past week, it would be unthinkable, for example, during the slave era in the history of the United States, that a black slave would become the governor of Mississippi, for example. And so this fact alone, and all this research that I've just pointed out to you, helps to demonstrate that slavery in the ancient Roman world was markedly different from the 17th to 19th century African chattel slavery that was practiced right here in Barbados. Thus, the ESV has translated the Greek word doulos as bondservant instead of slave in order to avoid miscommunicating what is really going on in Ephesians 6. You can actually read more about this translation choice in the preface of your ESV, which is located before the book of Genesis, if you're interested. However different slavery may have been in the first century, though, we are still confronted with the reality that Paul is addressing slaves and masters here in this section. And there are, broadly speaking, two biblically conservative schools of thought on Paul's treatment of slavery here in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9, and other places where the New Testament speaks to the issue. The first of these two views is that Paul assumes that slavery as an institution is indeed evil, but Paul is not focused in this passage on correcting the status quo, but only upon instructing Christians how to live within the status quo. A strength of this view allows us to condemn slavery in any form in the strongest possible terms, without any qualification or nuance. Let me explain. There are other examples where the biblical authors assume that Christians are indeed experiencing injustice. But, rather than confronting the injustice, what the biblical authors do is instruct Christians how to live within the injustice that they're experiencing. So, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 17, we read, It is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter, in that section, is assuming that there is unjust suffering in the world. But what he's telling Christians to do is bear up under the unjust suffering. And so, some argue that that's what's going on in the New Testament passages that discuss slavery, that there's an assumption underneath that slavery is indeed unjust and sinful, but nevertheless... The biblical writers aren't particularly addressing the question of whether or not slavery is sinful. Rather, they're speaking to Christians about how to live in a society where these things are realities. 
That's the first uh, view. And if that's what Paul is doing here in Ephesians 6, then we're free to say that slavery as an institution is always evil and that Paul is simply instructing slaves how to live within an evil system until their eventual emancipation. A weakness of this view is that it is strong enough in terms of addressing slaves. In other words, you can make that argumentation. But it doesn't account for Paul's silence when addressing masters. There is no other example in Scripture of a biblical author soft-pedaling the sin of his intended audience. There's nowhere in the Scripture that a biblical author is afraid or for pragmatic reasons decides not to confront a sin as sin and instead rather just tries to help somebody manage or mitigate the sinfulness of that sin. The biblical writers are not afraid to be countercultural. The biblical writers are not afraid to be confrontational. If you read through the whole New Testament, you're not going to get the sense that these guys were tippy-toeing around. The biblical writers are not willing to overlook sin as a pragmatic concession, fearing that it would rock the boat too much. So in the view that Paul does not speak to masters about the evils of slavery in itself, well, assuming slavery is in itself evil, if Paul does indeed assume that, seems to be a pretty weak postulation. The second view prevalent among biblically conservative Christians is this, that slavery as an institution is not inherently evil since it is fundamentally just an authority and submission dynamic. It is merely sinful forms and practices of slavery which ought to be condemned. And according to this view, that's what Paul is doing here. Again, for clarity's sake, as I said at the beginning of this message, kidnapping, torture, abuse, racism, rape, other forms of degrading or dehumanizing treatment are evil. 100%. But what if slavery as an institution occurred in an instance without those things, without kidnapping, without torture, without abuse, without rape, etc., and was simply an economic arrangement of labor where slaves were viewed as equals in dignity, in worth, in human value, and were treated accordingly? This is really hard for our 21st, sensi- 21st century sensibilities to consider for two reasons. I think, first, we live in a day and age of unprecedented individual autonomy. And any idea of prolonged and involuntary obligation to anyone else, and thereby a limitation to the pursuit of our own self-determined destiny sounds inherently evil to us. Take, for example, the American Constitution. People's inalienable rights. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Anything that is a circumstance in our life which might limit our pursuit of happiness, we tend to view in modern Western culture as being fundamentally and inherently evil, including the inability to change employers or quit our job. 
So I think we have an exaggerated sense of autonomy, which makes us entertain this idea that slavery in and of itself, when practiced humanely, without degrading anybody's value or worth, etc., etc., might actually be a permissible economic arrangement. That's the first thing that stands in the way. The second thing that stands in the way of us accepting a view like that in the 21st century West is this. As has already been mentioned, we have the 17th to 19th century African chattel slavery model, which was practiced right here in Barbados, fresh in our minds. And we have a hard time distinguishing between slavery in the abstract as an institution and the specific type of slavery which was practiced right here on the very soil upon which we live our daily lives. And so it doesn't sit well with us that slavery in itself as an institution might not be inherently evil. But what do we do with Paul's silence about slavery as an institution then as he addresses masters in this passage and does not say, free your slaves? Certainly, Paul here implicitly prohibits racism, abuse, torture, kidnapping. But he does not say, masters, free your slaves, which we might expect him to do if he thought more like us. But this is an instance where we might have to bend our thinking to conform with Scripture rather than bend Scripture to conform with our thinking. It seems that the Scripture uniformly assumes throughout, from Genesis to Revelation, that sinful ways of practicing slavery are indeed sinful. That's the consistent biblical witness from Genesis to Revelation. The biblical writers would fiercely and harshly condemn the kind of slavery that was practiced right here in Barbados. For sure. Absolutely. But from Genesis to Revelation... There's no condemnation of slavery anywhere as an institution. So let's examine that idea further a little bit. The scripture uniformly teaches us that all humans are equal in dignity and worth. All made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, which we've been dealing with in our evening series through Genesis, doesn't specify particular races but speaks of all mankind without exception. God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. That all men bear the image of God is repeated again twice in Scripture after the fall of Adam into sin. In Genesis 9, verse 6, and James chapter 3, and verse 9. It is indisputable that all men without exception... And when I say man, I'm speaking of women and children too. All human beings, without exception, are made in the image of God and are equal in value and worth and ought to be treated with dignity for that very reason. We see also racial equality promoted in the early church, both through the writings of the apostles and through the practice of the early church. For example, in Acts chapter 13 and verse 1, we read of a multi-ethnic leadership team comprised of two North Africans, two Jews, and one person of Greco-Roman descent, working together to give leadership to the church in Antioch. 
So the Scripture uniformly teaches the equality of all persons. However, both the Old Testament and the New Testament regulate rather than prohibit slavery altogether. For example, Exodus chapter 21 assumes the existence of slavery as an economic arrangement of labor among the Israelites, but at the same time regulates it so that it does not degenerate into a cruel and degrading and inhumane practice. Likewise, Colossians 3 verse 22 to chapter 4 and verse 1 assumes the existence of slavery as an economic arrangement of labor among the Colossian Christians, as Paul also does here in Ephesians chapter 6. Yet again, in both of those contexts, slavery is regulated rather than prohibited. It's regulated so that it does not degenerate into a cruel, degrading, and inhumane practice. So it does seem that indeed slavery as an institution is not inherently evil since if you free it of all of the degrading, inhumane, cruel, harsh, devaluing aspects that are so often attached to it, fundamentally all that's happening is an authority and submission dynamic where one person works for another and that there is a limitation to the autonomy of the the person doing the work. It's merely sinful forms and practices of slavery which ought to be condemned. And that's what Paul is doing in this passage. Here are some pros and cons of this view, starting with the negative. First, it is extremely uncomfortable and unpopular. As you might well imagine, this is not the most comfortable sermon for me to preach. But this is, this is one of those instances, though, where working consecutively through a book of the Bible forces us to address portions of Scripture that we might not jump to first if we were choosing a text. And all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. The reality is, though, it is extremely uncomfortable and unpopular among 21st century Westerners to adopt such a view. But discomfort with an idea is not a legitimate reason to reject an idea. Another negative of this view is that historically this view has been leveraged to support sinful instances of slavery and weaken the perceived legitimacy of movements calling for the abolition of truly sinful slavery. In other words, as people railed against the 17th to 19th century African chattel slavery practice here in Barbados, or the slavery that persisted into the 20th century in America, as people railed against that truly sinful form of slavery, people used the view that I just communicated to you to weaken the cause of abolition. And so it has been leveraged to defend something which is sinful. That's truly lamentable and ought never to have happened. But again, the abuse and misuse of a truth doesn't render a truth untrue. On the positive side, in favor of this view, it does better justice to this particular text. If you just read Ephesians 6, I think that's the impression you would get. And if you broadened your study of the Scripture to look at Genesis to Revelation, it does seem to harmonize better with the Scripture's teaching on slavery all the way through. So obviously, I do think 
that the second view that I presented to you is more biblical. You're free to disagree, and I respect that the same way that I respect other conservative commentators who disagree with that and put forward the first view. I would, however, ask you all to make sure that the impulse in your heart and in your mind as you consider these things is to bend your thinking to Scripture rather than to bend Scripture to your thinking as that's an important part of our growth in Christ. Regardless, however you look at it, it is important for us to stress the point that despite discomfort with the subject matter, duties are here pressed upon the Ephesians by the Apostle, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Slaves are to obey their earthly masters. Bondservants are to obey their earthly masters. That's right there in the text. That's a quote from Ephesians 6 and verse 5. So at the least, there's to be an outward conformity to their master's instructions. One cannot obey without at least that. But it goes further. There's to be a sincere heart orientation toward obedience. And again, that's almost a direct quote. It says, obey with a sincere heart. We see that in verse 5. There needs to be a heart level motivation to obey. So just gritting your teeth and doing it is less than God expects of Ephesian slaves. And then thirdly, there is to be integrity in obedience. In other words, obedience is to be offered at all times, not just when the master is watching. And that's what eye service means in verse 6. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, Obedience is not to be offered selectively when people might notice disobedience. But obedience is to be offered in integrity whether or not anybody is watching. And there are duties pressed on the masters here as well. Masters are to treat slaves with dignity and respect which is the sense of the phrase do the same to them in verse 9. Paul is not enjoining upon masters that they likewise ought to obey their slaves. That's not what he means when he says, do the same to them, which would render the passage then incomprehensible. Rather, it means relate to your slaves in a way that honors Christ, as your slaves are to relate to you in a way that honors Christ. In other words, he's just said to slaves, basically, to summarize, relate to your masters in a way that honors Christ. Then he says, masters do the same to them. So that's what's going on there in that section. Masters are to treat slaves with dignity and respect. What he says next reinforces this point. Stop your threatening. He removes here all argument that inhumane, cruel, harsh treatment of others could ever be the will of God. In other words, treat people like people because this pleases Christ. So these are the duties mentioned here. And the duties are straightforward enough. Slaves are to obey masters, and masters are to treat slaves with dignity and respect. It is important to note now that each are to fulfill their duties with regard to Christ as Lord. This is mentioned in every verse of the passage before us. Verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9. Look at your Bibles. In verse 5, 
the slaves' fear and trembling mentioned is not fear and trembling towards earthly masters, but fear and trembling toward Christ. In the Greek Bible, the Septuagint, the same Greek phrase here, fear and trembling, is used 11 times, and only once does it refer to fear and trembling toward enemies who might hurt us. The most common referent of the phrase is God Himself, as in fear and trembling toward God. And that seems to be the sense of the usage here. With respect to and reverence for Christ, slaves are to obey their earthly masters. That interpretation is solidified by the explicit phrase, as you would Christ, at the end of verse 5. The service offered is to be, by the slave, considered as service to the Lord. We see that in verse 7 explicitly. They are to work as unto the Lord and without respect to their earthly reward or lack thereof. Rather, they are to look to the Lord for their reward. Verse 8. Masters. Likewise, masters are to have ultimate respect to Christ and to treat their slaves accordingly. Again, do the same to them. As the slave's obedience is to be Christward, as the slave's heart orientation and mind orientation as he does his work is to be Christward, so is the master's. Christ is held out to masters as a judge who shows no partiality. If masters mistreat their slaves, they may get away with it insofar as the Roman government is concerned, but they will not ultimately get away with it. And they are to consider that as they treat their slaves or bondservants accordingly. A further implication of this statement that Christ is both their master and yours is that the slave and the earthly master are equal in the sight of Christ. The world may not see it that way, but Christ surely does. And He reminds in this section by His Spirit through the pen of the Apostle Paul that truth. Christ is both their master and yours. Which means you are both slaves. You are on the same footing before Christ. Christ is the great equalizer. All men are equal before Him. All men have the same necessity of redemption by Him. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. We have all broken God's law and we all need a substitute who will clothe us in righteousness and who will atone for our sins. Yes, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to His own way. Ah, but Christ has borne it. He has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Christ is the great equalizer here. All men have the same necessity of redemption by Him. And Christ died for slaves and masters alike. Again, equalizing. Slaves and masters need redemption. And in Christ Jesus, slaves and masters alike may have redemption. Christ Jesus did not die for a particular race. 
But as Revelation tells us, to redeem for Himself a people from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. Somebody, I don't know who the quote originated with, it was floating around on social media a while back. But somebody pointed out that eternity to come is the white supremacist nightmare. Because you get to heaven, supposedly, after worshipping a white Jesus, and find out that he wasn't actually white. And in fact, he has redeemed for himself a people from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation and has made them your brothers and sisters. Neither did Christ Jesus die for a certain class of people. Christ Jesus did not die for the who's who of society alone. Though there have been kings and emperors throughout history who have realized themselves to be but dust at the foot of the cross and whom we may expect to see in heaven. Nor did Christ Jesus die merely for the poor and the downtrodden. But we will find from the prince to the pauper all manner of people in glory. Christ is the great equalizer. We all stand in need of redemption. And we all have the offer and the hope of redemption in Christ Jesus. Nobody needs that righteousness that comes from Him any less. Nobody has more hope apart from Him. Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone is the only name given under heaven by which slaves and masters alike may be saved. And consequent to our redemption, all men have the same duties toward Christ. Obviously our specific duties vary depending on our situation in life but all are bound to love God and neighbor all are bound to keep the Ten Commandments so both slaves and masters are to relate to one another with reference to Christ that's what Paul is teaching here in this section and therefore being Christians ought to inform the way that Ephesian slaves and Ephesian masters work being Christians ought to inform the way that Ephesian slaves and Ephesian masters work and this is the point of everything that I've said so far being Christians ought also to inform the way that we work there is a particularly Christian way for first century Ephesians to be slaves namely with reference to Christ and there was a particularly Christian way for first century Ephesians to be masters namely with reference to Christ likewise in the 21st century there is a particularly Christian way to work we are to work with reference to Christ whether as employees or employers, we are to treat others with reference to Christ and we are to work as unto Christ. You might object here and say, 
But I'm not a slave nor a master of slaves. This doesn't apply to me. True, you're neither a slave nor a master of a slave. But that actually only strengthens your responsibility to obey these imperatives. Let me explain that statement. If even slaves and masters stood in that relationship to one another, then how much more ought employees and employers to relate to one another in the same manner? Employees, if those who could not quit their jobs or change their employers or apply for a transfer to another internal position, if even they were to work as unto the Lord, obediently, sincerely, and with integrity, how much more than ought you, so long as you choose to stay at your present job, how much more ought you to do the same? You see, the fact that you are not a slave doesn't exempt you from this kind of obedience in your workplace. If anything, it strengthens it. Because you're saying, I am choosing to be there every day. And indeed you are. And so if even those who couldn't choose ought to work that way, how much more ought you who do choose day by day to show up to offer that same kind of work in your workplace? Obedience. Outward conformity, at the very least, to your employer's instructions. But more than that, sincere obedience, as this passage instructs slaves to do. Obey with a sincere heart. And not with eye service. Obedience with integrity. Not just when your boss is in the room, or not just when you're in view of the security cameras, or whatever the case may be. But obey with integrity. Work with integrity. If it was true for slaves in first century Ephesus, how much more actually ought we to work like that in our present economic system? Employees, this scripture has something very strong to say to you. Sometimes we think of work as being something separate from our Christian lives. As if it is in a hermetically sealed container distinct from the rest of our lives. As if the normal rules don't apply. We might not evaluate ourselves on a relative scale elsewhere. But we evaluate ourselves on a relative scale at work. Reasoning to ourselves, well everyone does it. So I do it too. Would that fly with respect to marital fidelity? No, of course not. Would Would that fly with respect... Uh, to living in a bad neighborhood where everybody else is committing crimes? Of course not. We don't evaluate ourselves on a relative scale in other environments, but for some reason, many of us evaluate ourselves on a relative scale when it comes to the workplace. And we do the sinful things that our fellow co-workers are doing. This ought not to be so. Or we might... Not think that Christ is unconcerned about the rest of our lives. But we do reason to ourselves, if only subconsciously, from time to time, that Christ is unconcerned about our work. Both its quality and our attitude in doing it. We would never think that Christ is unconcerned with how we love our wives. 
But we may think that Christ is unconcerned with how we plaster a wall. The reality is that He's not unconcerned. We are to work as unto the Lord. As if Christ asked you to plaster that wall. Or to file that paperwork. To crunch those numbers. We, we can't bring this double standard into our workplace. We must work obediently. Conforming to the instructions that we've been given. And to do it sincerely. Which among other things means not just the least that we can get away with, but the best that we can do. And we ought not to be offering our obedience by way of eye service. Again, not just doing the best we can do during those times when the supervisor is on site, but all day long. Even when perhaps the other guys are taking a water break. Sometimes we might think of work as a byproduct of Adam's fall into sin. Like this. If Adam hadn't sinned, I wouldn't have to work this stupid job. Well, it's true that the futility, the inefficiency, the thorns and the thistles of the workplace are connected to the fall. Work itself isn't. And in fact, overcoming those thorns and thistles is part of our ongoing mandate. Work is part of the created order. It's part of our creation mandate to work. Filling this world with light and order and life. As we've also been talking about in our evening series through Genesis. So if slaves in the first century in Ephesus ought to have obeyed sincerely and with integrity. Out of respect for Christ. How much more are we as employees who choose to be there day by day do the same? Likewise, employers, if even those who had the legal power over the life and death of their slaves, as masters did in first century Rome, if even those who had legal power over the life and death of their slaves should have treated slaves with dignity and worth, out of respect for Christ, how much more ought you who have employees working for you to do the same to them? In other words, your employees stand in with a much more exalted status in the eyes of the law before you as slaves did before their masters in the first century if even they ought to have treated their employees right, as unto God, as unto Christ, if, if even masters in the first century ought to have considered their slaves as equals under Christ, who is both their master and yours, then how much more are you as a 21st century Western employer whom even the secular law recognizes with many, many more rights than first century slaves had. How much more ought you to treat your employees with dignity and with respect, out of respect and reverence for Christ, as equals to you?
any of the arguments that you may give for why you treat your employees badly could be echoed and then some by first century masters. But the duty remains. Do the same to them. In other words, treat them the same way out of reverence for Christ who is both their master and yours. Again, it's so clear that this passage puts people of all economic classes, irrespective of the authority and submission dynamics at play, on the same footing before God in terms of equality, in terms of value, and in terms of duty to their fellow man. We humans like to find ways not to do unto others as we would have them do unto us, as we read earlier in the service. We like to find ways not to work the way that we would want employees to work for us. We want to find ways not to treat our employees the way that we would want employers to treat us if we were in their shoes. It's for sins like these that Jesus had to come and die on the cross. It's for sins like these that we needed reconciliation with God. It is sins like these that Jesus Christ had to cover with His own righteousness. As we turn to the communion table in a moment, let's orient our hearts toward Christ. Remembering that He is the great equalizer. We all stand on equal footing before Him, guilty of sin and in need of reconciliation. And that He has died for all kinds of people alike, slaves and masters alike. He's the great equalizer in redemption. And He is the great equalizer with respect to our duties moving forward into the week ahead. Whatever your job is, whatever your specific duties may be, all are required to work as unto Christ with respect and reverence toward Christ.